few weeks ago, we witnessed probably the first, if not the first, at least the most epic, of all rags to riches stories. Joseph, the character we've been looking at for the last several weeks, while he remains in the bowels of the king's prison one night, Pharaoh dreams a dream, a prophetic dream, that none of his musicians, none of the wise men of Egypt were able to interpret. This caused Pharaoh a measure of consternation. And yet the butler, who's overseeing all of this happening, he remembers his own experience. You see, two years before, the butler had been sent to prison himself. He had angered Pharaoh, angered the king, had been sent. And while he was in jail, one night, the butler dreamed a dream himself. And it was Joseph who not just provided an interpretation, but provided a correct interpretation. And so seeing that Pharaoh has dreamed a dream, that no one can provide the interpretation, remembering this young Hebrew still in jail, could at least demonstrate it at one point, the ability to interpret dreams, the butler brings up, this particular option. Hey, you should go and get Joseph. Pharaoh is so desperate that he goes along with the plan. He sends word to have Joseph brought out of prison, cleaned up, shaven, showered, a little deodorant, brought before him. Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph provides an interpretation. The interpretation is simple. This dream that Pharaoh had was God revealing to him that there would be seven years of plenty immediately followed by seven years of severe famine. Joseph, though, he doesn't stop by just providing the interpretation. Instead, Joseph wisely then counsels Pharaoh, advising him how he should apply this revelation that God had given, the application of the dream. He suggests preparatory measures. Joseph suggests that during the seven years of plenty, a 20% tax on all grain production be enacted, and that Pharaoh appoint a wise and trusted counselor to oversee the whole project. Their lives depended on stocking up provisions for this famine. Incredibly, Pharaoh not only agrees with Joseph's interpretation and then his assessment, but he appoints Joseph to be this particular man. He appoints him to the position. In one single day, this rags to riches story, Joseph goes from being a forgotten man and the king's prison to rising as the second most powerful man in all of the world. Because Pharaoh believes Joseph to be a savior, it's what his new Egyptian name literally means, he entrusts all of Egypt to Joseph's care. Additionally, the pot gets sweetened. Joseph is given a bride, starts a family. He's given power, status, prestige. So, verse 45, Joseph went out over all of the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all of the land of Egypt. Now in the seven years of plenty, the ground brought forth abundantly. So Joseph gathered up all of the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. 
According to Moses' account here, during these seven years of plenty, this 20% tax yielded so much grain that Joseph, he just stops recording the bounty. It's as, as the sand of the sea. Not only is Egypt prepared for this coming famine, but the amount of grain they were able to accumulate placed the Egyptians into a situation where they would be able to capitalize on this coming famine. You see, these provisions would not just save and preserve Egypt, but would save, ultimately, the entire world, enriching Egypt and the process. Verse 50, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Azaneth, the daughter of Potipharae, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For God, he says, has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second, he called Ephraim, saying, For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. It would appear from this text that not only was Joseph's professional life profitable, but his personal life also proved to be fruitful. During these seven years, before, we're told, the years of famine came, Joseph and his wife have two sons. The firstborn, Joseph names Manasseh, which is literally translated as forgetting. The second son he names Ephraim, which means literally fruitful. From the time Joseph had been sold into slavery until his ultimate ascent, these many years, I am sure, I'm confident of the fact that Joseph struggled, as we all would, right? Trying to see God's providential hand behind his trying circumstances. Believing with faith that God had his hand on his life. Believing in faith that God was working all to the good, but just unable to see it. I'm sure Joseph spent years struggling to keep his head up to keep his gaze to the heavens, his trust. As with anyone facing what Joseph faced, Joseph wrestles with the why and the how of God's plan and his plight. For years he struggles. Why is this happening? How can God use these things? I'm sure the years that Joseph is struggling, there have been questions that have continually nagged him, right? Why? Why had a loving God, a God who loved him, allowed his brothers to not just treat him so harshly, but sell him into slavery? I'm sure Joseph struggled thinking, why? Why had God allowed Potiphar to send him to prison knowing he had been falsely accused, slandered, and that he was innocent? Why, God? Why? I'm sure for years in the prison, at least those two years, Joseph wrestled with why. Why had God not caused the butler to remember him? I mean, he had demonstrated nothing but kindness, and yet the man had forgotten. It seems, all things considered, that hindsight is now providing Joseph a measure of clarity. Now that he's ascended to his position of power, 
Now that Joseph is being used as an instrument of God for salvation, Joseph now gets it. Joseph understands why God had allowed all of these things to happen, why God had allowed him to be sent to Egypt, why he had allowed him to be falsely accused so he would be thrown into the prison, why it was, it was necessary that the butler forgot so that he would remember later when Pharaoh would have a dream. You see, the naming of these two sons provides us a glimpse into Joseph's heart, what's really going on in his mind. First, seeing God's plan manifesting right before his eyes. Joseph was finally able to let go of any bitterness that I'm sure he felt towards those that had done him wrong. Seeing that God was providing and using him, that none of this would have been possible without what had occurred. Joseph, I'm sure he was able at this point to forgive the actions of his brothers, to forgive the actions of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, the butler. Sure, what they had done, it still stung. But the knowledge that God had used these things to accomplish his will and prepare Joseph for what came, that brought him great solace. He was able to let go of his bitterness and move forward. And it was as a result of Joseph finally letting go and laying aside his hurt feelings, that what do we see? His life was beginning to bear fruit. First, there was Manasseh, forgetting. But then there was Ephraim, fruitful. See, by the time his second son comes around, God's blessings were unmistakable. The season of suffering, well, it had been necessary to make him, to form him, to prepare him and to man, into the man that God had called him to be and needed him to be a savior for the world. Well, verse 53, then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. So Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And he opened, Joseph, all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. Following these seven years of plenty, just as God had revealed to Pharaoh through his dream, this famine, it hits with vengeance. In addition to the effects of the food production in Egypt being severe, we're also told, quote, the famine was over all the face of the earth. Because of Pharaoh's faith in Joseph, because of Pharaoh's willingness to trust Joseph's plan, placing his full faith in his Savior. Not only were the Egyptians, were, we were told, preserved, but all the countries came to Joseph to buy grain. I imagine that knowing how this famine was not just affecting Egypt, but affecting the surrounding region, therefore affecting his family back in Cana, for Joseph 
I think he gets it. The full picture of God's plan is coming into view. He knows that there will be an arrival soon. So as we transition from chapter 41 into chapter 42, the narrative moves two years now into the famine. But when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. Recognizing that their resources were reaching a critical level, placing their own survival in peril, Jacob pragmatically decides that it would be wise to send his sons to Egypt to purchase grain. It was the logical option. Now, keep in mind that this decision that Joseph makes will set into motion a chain of events recorded over the next three chapters that will ultimately end in a grand reveal that no one in this family would have, would have or could have ever imagined. Now, it's a difficult idea to consider. Before we move forward, there's an idea that we do need to unpack here. But even dwelling in the land of promise, the promised land, God's people were not immune from famine. Did, did you catch that? You know, it's interesting looking at Jacob's life because for so many years, Jacob had lived where? Not in the land of promise, outside of the land that God had called him to. And as a result of doing that, did he experience blessing or cursing? The truth is he blessed greatly in disobedience, outside of the land. He prospered. And yet, now that Jacob is right where God called him to be, right where he was supposed to be, the promised land, the land of his fathers, the land God had given, what happens? He's outside of the land, he's blessed. He's inside of the land, and he faces a famine. A trial of incredible proportions. Please understand, friend, obeying God does not and will not pardon you from the natural struggles of life and a fallen world. Jacob was being obedient by dwelling in the land that God had promised him, but he was still facing the same famine the rest of the world was also trying to endure. He wasn't immune from struggle, from trial, from hardship, from peril. But as we're going to see over the coming weeks, the famine came for one reason. God had a big plan for it all. You know, in a book that we've dubbed the Genesis of Grace, you should note that this particular famine played a significant role in God revealing to his people a much larger reality. You know, the fact is that every story of God's amazing grace always leads to a Savior. Like, really, think about that for a moment. How interesting that a book that illustrates a doctrine that Romans and Galatians presents, this idea of God's grace, the most grace-centric book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. The law doesn't even come to Exodus 20. Grace, every word, every page, every story, if you've been with us, you've seen it. How does a story of God's grace end? A Savior 
to save the world. You think that's an accident? I don't. You see, there is no greater manifestation of God's unmerited favor, his grace, than his offer of salvation to people who cannot save themselves, which is typified by Judah and his sons. Now, I know I've mentioned this in subsequent studies, but this is as good a time as any to develop the idea of Joseph being a picture of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think he's probably the most stark picture of Jesus in all of the Bible other than the man himself. It's amazing to me that within Joseph's story, we not just see this picture of Jesus, but we're also provided the overarching narrative for the entire Bible. Follow me real quick. First, like Joseph in his dreams... Jesus came to his brethren with a revelation from God. Sadly, the children of Israel, like Joseph's brothers, not only rejected his message, but on account of their envy, they eventually rejected this brother, who, by the way, was the favorite son of the father, by selling him to the Gentiles, just as these brothers did to Joseph, for 30 pieces of silver. This is what happened to Jesus. And yet, while these sons of Jacob were convinced that Jesus, like Joseph, was dead, from his place of suffering, Jesus would ultimately be exalted as the Savior of the world. As Joseph rose to be second in command of Pharaoh, Jesus ascended where? To the right hand of his father. All authority was placed into his hand. And it was during this time when the children of Israel were still rejecting Jesus, believing him, like Joseph, to be dead, that an incredible harvest ensues, a season of plenty. And note, it was during this season, before the arrival of seven years of tribulation, that Jesus, once again like Joseph, was given what? A Gentile bride whose offspring would be grafted in or adopted into the family of Abraham. Manasseh and Ephraim would take the place later on of Simeon and Reuben. They would be grafted in. They would become part of the 12. Interesting. You see, these brothers, they had rejected Jesus. They had sold Jesus out, and yet, During this season of plenty, where Jesus takes a Gentile bride, the pain that had been inflicted by his brothers was forgotten. Manasseh. And what happens? We experience great fruitfulness, Ephraim. And yet, in the same way as Joseph, Jesus was not through with his brethren. You see, God specifically will use what? A seven-year period of tribulation to bring the children of Israel the sons of Jacob, to a place where what? They would see that the very brother they had rejected and believed to be dead, Jesus, had indeed been exalted to be their Savior as well. See the picture? It's the picture of the entire story of the Bible nestled right here at the end of the book of Genesis. And what makes it incredible is that we not just have this picture of Jesus His rejection by the children of Israel. 
his ultimate suffering, his exaltation as a savior. But we also see a picture of the church, this Gentile bride, a season of harvest. Jesus told us the harvest is plentiful. That's a promise. And the final unveiling of the rejected brother, Jesus, to Israel during a great seven-year tribulation. Verse 3, so Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now for context, by this point in the narrative, Joseph, we're two years into the famine. Joseph is approximately 39 years old. We've had the seven years of plenty. He rises at 30. We have seven years of plenty. We're two years into the famine. Joseph's 39. Benjamin, his youngest brother, is somewhere in his late 20s. The rest of his brothers are ranging between 40 and 60 years of age. These are grown men with their own families. Now, since Benjamin is the only remaining son of Rachel, Jacob presuming Joseph had passed away, Jacob forbids his involvement, sending instead the other 10 on the 250-mile journey from Hebron to Egypt to purchase grain. Now Joseph, verse 6, was governor over the land. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now certain that his family would be coming to Egypt to purchase grain at some point or another. I'm confident Joseph had been on the lookout. We're told when his brothers finally do arrive, Joseph immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him as their brother. And, and the truth is that that really shouldn't be all that surprising. Physically speaking, there is no doubt that Joseph has changed a lot over the last 20 years. I mean, he's gone from being a scrappy, pimple-faced teenager, the favored son of the father, to now a hardened man, a man of Egypt. Not only does Joseph's face show a difficult life, the life of slavery, the life of imprisonment. But I'm sure he's adorning the attire of a common Egyptian. Aside from all this, as, we're, as we'll soon see, these brothers are confident that Joseph passed away. Like, they don't believe at all that Joseph survived. I mean, it's been 20 years, right? And the life expectancy of a slave in Egypt, eh, wasn't very long, especially for a, a spoiled little brat like Joseph, right? In no way, as they come from Hebron into Egypt, no way do these 10 brothers think that they're going to stumble across Joseph. That is the furthest thing from their minds. They don't see that happening at all. Now imagine this moment. What the moment must have been like for Joseph. When you have these 10 brothers unknowingly, right? 
coming before their brother Joseph and bowing down with their faces to the earth. The language used here is identical to what Joseph describes in his dreams of his brothers bowing down before him. Now, as we work our way through the text, there's one other side point you should keep in mind. For the vast majority of all of the dialogue, Joseph will be speaking Egyptian to his brothers through a translator who will then take it into Hebrew. They don't understand that he can hear them and understand what, what they're saying. There is a language barrier that's presented. Also, before we get to the specifics, Joseph's interactions with his brothers, like they're pretty tough. And, and you need to know why they're tough. <laughs> Our text has already told us that Joseph, upon recognizing him, was rough in the way that he handles them. And it doesn't get any easier. As a matter of fact, it gets a whole lot more complicated. And there was a reason for this. Keep in mind, as we move forward, not only Joseph speaks through a translator, but the way that Joseph handles his brothers is designed to ascertain whether or not they're genuinely repentant for what they've done to him and how they're treating Benjamin. Joseph wants to see how they're treating his, his brother Benjamin. He has no idea what's taking place over the last 20 years. He sees them. He recognizes them. He has no idea what's taking place. So he's going to handle them in a certain way that from our perspective is going to be like, man, Joe, you're being kind of a jerk. There's a reason that he's being kind of a jerk, and the whole purpose is to see if they've really repented. He's going to use Benjamin for this. Verse 8, so Joseph recognized his brothers. They did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But Joseph said to them, This is through a translator. No, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. In fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one, speaking of Joseph, is no more. Now, in order to get these men talking so he could get a a better picture of what's really going on, through an interpreter, Joseph accuses them of being spies who'd come to Egypt looking for vulnerabilities in the system. Logically, since Egypt is the only nation with an adequate grain supply, The world being ravaged by famine, there was prudency in vetting any and all foreigners. It's not an abnormal thing to look for spies. Now, not only do these ten sons very quickly deny any type of ill intent, but they explain to Joseph that we're not coming from other nations. As a matter of fact, we're just one family. Like, we're no threat. That's their point. We come from one man. We're one man's sons. We live in the land of Canaan. In a matter of full disclosure, they continue by saying that they actually have 12 sons in totality. The youngest is with their father. One's passed away. (laughs) Imagine Joseph's reaction when he hears out of their mouths them actually claim to be honest men. We're honest men. Threw up a little in his mouth, I'm sure. Like, are you kidding me? A lot of things might have changed. That probably hadn't. These were not the brothers he remembered. So Joseph said to them, 
It is I, it is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now we start to see the plan. Send one of you, let him bring your brother. You shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now, keep in mind two key realities. One, admittedly, Joseph has zero reason to trust his brothers, right? He trusts nothing that come out of their mouths. Two, he has no idea what's transpired over the last 20 years back at home. He doesn't trust them. He has no idea what's happened. Matter of fact, he has no idea how the brothers eventually spun a tale to his father why he had disappeared. He doesn't know how they've treated Benjamin. A lot of uncertainty. And it's with this in mind that Joseph here presents a test by which he'll get his answers. Nine of the ten will remain in prison while they send one brother back to Canaan to retrieve Benjamin. If, as the plan is laid out, one returns with the youngest, Joseph will know their story is true. They aren't spies. The whole plan is to get Benjamin to Egypt. Verse 17, so he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but, but you go and carry grain for the famine to your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now, he, he lets them sit in prison for three days. But Joseph returns with kind of a new amended proposal, right? Instead of nine remaining in prison and only one brother going to retrieve Benjamin, Joseph's flipped it. One brother will stay while the other nine go and make the journey. Also, in an act of goodwill, Joseph will let them return with provisions. So you can take grain, you can go, I'm going to hold one of you. That's interesting. Joseph has just created a dynamic that will test what? He will test how far they'll actually go to save the one brother that they end up leaving behind. Like, will they take the easy route? Will they leave him? Well, they said to one another, verse 21, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And they're talking of Joseph. And we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, the oldest, answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you? Saying, Do not sin against the boy. You would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them. For he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. It's amazing how these ten men process their dicey situation in Egypt. Their conclusion is that the origin of their present distress was that in actuality they were truly guilty for what they had done to Joseph. They're saying it's all coming back. They give us actually more details than what we were originally given in the story. They didn't hear. Joseph is in the pit pleading, yelling. They heard him, but they didn't hear. And they didn't act with any type of compassion when we're told that they saw the anguish of Joseph as he's pleading. Don't do this to me. Don't kill me. Don't sell me into slavery. Why? What did I do? Reuben, you know, the brother who had concocted the plan to try to get Joseph out of trouble, 
he goes so far as to say that God is judging them for their actions. He says, behold, Joseph's blood is now required of us. It's clear that their conscience is eating at all of them. It's been 20 years, and still what they had done to their brother Joseph is eating at them. Their secret sin stirred a guilt that they've never been able to escape. What they had done to Joseph had tormented them. They knew it had been wrong. They knew their actions had been terrible, and they've been miserable ever since. The way the scene sets itself up is that these ten brothers have a very raw and real conversation in Hebrew directly in front of this Egyptian, who we know to be Joseph. They think he can't understand them. He only speaks Egyptian, and yet Joseph understands every word. Imagine, Joseph, it's been 20 years, and you're hearing these brothers say this. You see their guilt. You see their condemnation. You see the torment. His blood is upon us. We didn't listen to him. We didn't hear him. God is judging us. And he's surprised that Joseph turns himself away and weeps. What a heavy moment it must have been as Joseph hears the very men who had wronged him so deeply acknowledge their sin. I'm sure as they're talking, moments and memories, hurts and terrors flood back into Joseph's souls. Things he hadn't thought about for years quickly return that day when he had been attacked, the day he had been thrown into the pit, the day that started such a difficult journey. So long ago, he was reliving it as they're talking, as if it had happened yesterday. So Joseph, after turning away, returns to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus, he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain, departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. There it is. It's in my, my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they were afraid saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? They're fearing reprisal. Then they went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan. They told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we're honest men. We're not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with us. Take food for the famine to your households. Be gone and bring your youngest brother to me. So I shall know that you are not spies, but you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, said to the, Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. 
and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. After returning to Jacob, describing why their brother Simeon isn't with them, and explaining why they need now permission to take Benjamin back to Egypt, we're told as they're emptying their sacks of grain, they all find these bundles of money. Now, we know that it was Joseph who gave them the money back. But let's be real. The optics don't look very good. Aside from being accused of being spies, it now seems like they had stolen the grain. Not only, and this is what the setting of the scene establishes, would they have to return with Benjamin to convince Joseph that they weren't spies, but they're also going to have to figure out a reason to explain why they took the grain and didn't pay for it. So things have kind of gone from bad to worse. The ante's been upped. And sad to say, Jacob, oh, Jacob, good old heel catcher. He doesn't take any of this very well. Verse 37, And Reuben spoke to his father, saying, and Reuben's an idiot. <laughs> Kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. That's a great idea. If I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill your grandkids. But Jacob said, My son, speaking of Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. And if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. These brothers are clearly in a pickle. They know they don't have enough grain to survive the famine. Meaning they're going to have to go back to Egypt at some point or another. Without Benjamin, they know they have zero chance of proving to the Egyptian that they aren't spies. Beyond that, where's Simeon? Jacob's like, no, you're not taking Benjamin. They're like, dad, we got to take Benjamin. He's like, you're not. And the whole time all this is going on, Simeon's in jail back in Egypt. Jacob has already written him off. He's like, yeah, Joseph's dead, and now Simeon's dead because you're not taking Benjamin, right? I mean, that's, that's the thought process. You see, the longer they tarried, the guiltier they looked. And for, for all parties involved, as sad it is, as it is, even with Reuben's, you know, great assurances to protect Benjamin at all costs, Jacob will have none of it. Benjamin's not going to Egypt. Well, chapter 43, verse 1, and we're almost done. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said, go back and buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we ain't going down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. <laughs> desperate times, desperate measures. They're out of food. Judah's like, I got a great idea. You should go back. Judah's like, it ain't happening. Have you not been listening? What's going on? Israel says to him, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me? 
asked to tell the man whether you still had another brother. You get what he's saying? He's like, you morons. Why didn't you lie? Like, why did you, when he was like, hey, what's going on? Like, why did you have to say you have got a brother back at home? Why couldn't you just, you know, we're 10. This is just us. There's nobody back at home. Like, this man, keep in mind, one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, after wrestling with Jesus, this great man of faith, his whole reaction to this? Why aren't you lying? Why haven't you spun a tail? Haven't I taught you guys anything? That's his reaction. But they said to him, the man has told us. He, he asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family. Is your father alive? Have you another brother? We don't know why he was asking these things. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? So Judah says to Israel, his father, send the lad with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be a surety for him, for my hand you shall require of him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. Fast forward real quickly to verse 14. Israel says, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. We're going to get back to some of this. But there's a point I, I need to make about Jacob. Like recognizing that, there's, there's, that he's in a pickle himself, he's going to have to send the boys back. Like how does, how does Jacob... How does he deal with all of this? This old man who's been walking with the Lord for years. When he gets word, he's like, you guys are killing me. Why didn't you lie? Why is this befalling me? Why is this happening? Do you find any faith at all in Jacob's reaction? Like, look back at, at, at verse 36. Chapter 42, verse 36, he says this. He says, all these things are against me. Now, we know the end of the story, right? But this is how the man of faith is summarizing the trial in front of him. All of these things are against me. And consider the irony of that for just a minute. Yes, the famine was difficult. Yes, this Egyptian master seemed to be unfairly picking on his sons. But were any of these things working against Jacob? Or were they actually working for Jacob? See, we have a, a flaw in his perception. You see, his assessment of his trial was patently false. These things, the famine and what jo these things were not against Jacob. They were actually working together for his good. Do you get that? You see, the truth is that everything that's happening here is being used by God to yield a very specific blessing in Jacob's life. He could have never imagined that Joseph, his son, was alive. And yet he says, all these things are against me. He's, he's Eeyore, man. Like, 
Oh, woe is me. Like, that's his, re- it's, it's, it's this great man of faith. He allows his heart to be filled with unbelief because of a flaw in his perspective. And notice what, what Jacob has never done in this. At any point, has he hit his knees? Has he prayed? Lord, why is this happening? This famine. What's the deal with this Egyptian? It seemed to be, this seems to be unfair. Are you working here? Like, never once does he set his eyes on heaven because he's only focused on what's around him. His perspective stinks. Now, to this point, the Reverend William M. Taylor, writing in the late 1800s, he makes this observation. He says, in and over all human interactions and all material operations, there is God. His providence is universal and supreme. And the first thought of our spirits should be, it is the Lord. Thus, so soon as we face a trial up to God, we are on the way to comfort and support under it. If God had wished our destruction or any absolute evil befall us, He need not have sent his son to make atonement for our sins. But the very fact that he had done that proves he desires our highest welfare and will make all things subservient to our everlasting good. All things. Therefore, if we would not fall into despair under our trials, let us recognize God's hand in them. We may be sure of this, that trouble never yet overwhelmed a man or a woman as long as he could see God in it. Let me repeat that last line. We may be sure of this, that trouble never yet overwhelmed a man or a woman so long as he could see God in it. Jacob was not looking for God's hand in his trial. He was not looking for God's hand in his difficulty. And yet God's fingerprints were all over it. Friend, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what trial or what storm. It's been said all humanity really falls into three categories. You're either exiting a storm, you're in a storm, or you're approaching a storm. Storms are part of life. If you're in disobedience, yeah, there's storms. If you're in obedience, there's storms. It's part of our existence. And yet the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer has something to hold to, an anchor in the storm, and that is that God works all for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purposes. And when you can't see it, Will you act like Jacob and say, woe is me, I am bereaved, all these things are against me. Or like Joseph, will you say, I have no idea what you're doing and I have no idea how you're doing it. I have no evidence in front of me that you're involved. 
but I know you are because you've told me as such. Will you hold fast that God will never leave you nor forsake you and that he's working whatever you're facing to your good? Will you cry out, woe is me? That doesn't help anything. And so, Father, Lord, we ask.